So first talk is Peter de Pierre. Peter works at Deloitte actual, as an actual analyst. He's a, a C6 quadriplegic, a para-athlete. Para He's a multiple world record holder, and he also is a history maker, which I'm sure you'll tell us a little bit about where he's made history. Um, so Peter and his wife Ilza will just be sharing with us uh, their story. Please welcome him. Thanks. So, just going to start off with a quick video and then, then we'll get it going. This is my first Paralympics. I usually compete in longer distances, but the sprints is the only event available for my class, so I've had to adjust my training quite a bit. It's been a huge challenge, but I've really enjoyed it. And now each day, I'm just getting more and more excited. It really is a dream come true. I declare open the London 2012 Paralympic Games. So I want to take you guys back to the 3rd of September 2012. Um, I was sitting behind the starting line uh, waiting for starters orders um, in the Olympic Stadium packed with 80,000 people. Um, and, you know, obviously a lot of things goes through your mind at that point. And I just remember that I was thinking that 26 years prior to that, I was six years old and every day I was praying and dreaming of going to the Olympics. And as I sat there, I realized that the most amazing part was not that I've actually reached that that dream and that goal. The most amazing part was the 26 years of living that dream. So I'm Peter Dupree and this is my wife Ilza and we'd like you guys to join us on our journey of inspiration. I'm going to give you guys a little bit of background of what I was all about before my accident. Um, I'm the middle child of three brothers, um, so the problem child as most people would call it. Um, and uh, I you know, like to believe that my parents brought us up to live a balanced lifestyle. Um, you know, juggling the sport and the social and the academics and the culture side of, the, of things. Um, and I think they managed to do that um, already at school. You know, I did pretty okay in my academics. I took part in all the culture and choir and those type of things. Um, and I already started excelling in sport. Um, from there, I went to study actuarial science um, at the best university at that point, Rao University. Um, <laughs> And uh, it was so good that we don't have it anymore there. But, um, <laughs> um, but anyway, um, during those years, I did my degree in ACTI there. <clears throat> uh, I was also on a sports bursary, staying in the sports res, um, took part in culture events and um, study groups and those things, played guitar. So I still try to keep that balance. Um, and also during that period, um, I made the South African students team in cycling, um, triathlon and also made the South African under-23 team in triathlon. Um, and yeah, at that point I was, um, you know, still thinking I was well on my way and achieving all my dreams um, in sports specifically. Um, and um, I was then also moved across and did my honours in investment management um, part-time at, at um, Rao University at that point. Um, and I, I obviously decided on that rather than to go do my honours at WITS because I was on a sports bursary and I, I'd walked my road um, at Rao University. Um, 
anyway, then came 6 October 2003 when everybody thought um, all my dreams were shattered except for one person, and luckily that was me. Um, it's an ironic story. I was out, uh, um, I had to cycle 60 kilometers on the day, um, and I had a bit of a hamstring niggle. Um, and a friend had told me about a chiropractor. I'd been there once before, it was 30 k's away, so I decided, okay, I'm going to go um, and cycle there and kill two birds with one stone. And um, on my way to the chiropractor to get my spine in alignment, a cord didn't see me and knocked my spine completely out of alignment. Um, so um, I was lying there on the tour face down. Um, and at that point, I couldn't move a thing. Um, and so I obviously knew something was wrong with my neck. Um, whether it was going to be permanent at that point, I wasn't sure. Um, but it was also amazing for me, the car had knocked me over. Um, it was an elderly lady, um, and she got out of her car, she thought a rock hit her car, and she got out of the car, she saw the bike lying on the, uh, on the tour, and um, then she just started shouting and screaming, running across to me. Um, and there was obviously a, a couple of other people also came across, and uh, for me it was incredible, for me how the grace of God was just there with me. Um, I calmed her down, and I told her that, um, you know, she must just, you know, I forgive her and uh, she must just relax and we must just deal with the situation because accidents do happen. Um, and yeah, I, it felt like ages, but about 45 minutes later, um, the ambulance actually did arrive. Um, I remember I even told the people where my cell phone was and to phone my dad first because I knew my mom would freak out. Um, and um, they had to stabilize me, but eventually I was off to the closest or nearest hospital, um, which was my Barton Hospital. Um, it was actually out in the south, um, and um, I got x-rayed there, but um, during that period I started batting to breathe as well. Um, and then they realized they couldn't deal with the severity of my injuries, and at that point is where they, they put me out, basically, with painkillers. Um, and what had basically happened was I broke my femur, crashed my kneecap, um, broke both my wrists, and then the most severe of all of that was that I broke my, my neck. Um, and um, I obviously had to take and had to be taken to the Union Hospital, a different hospital that could deal with severe injuries like that. Um, uh, I started batting and breathe, so I was put on a ventilator, um, and um, I think it was about a week that I was put in an induced coma as well, um, because they couldn't operate immediately. So they actually had to um, screw, well, drill holes and screw, I had screws in my head um, and weights attached to my head to keep my neck in traction. Um, and, um, yeah, you know, during that period in the coma, I was still, you know, for me, um, you probably get different levels, obviously, of being in a coma, but I knew exactly um, what was going on around me. Um, and I was obviously hallucinating when I thought I was talking to the people that came to visit. Um, but, uh, yeah, um, after a week that they operated on my neck, um, and then I came out of the coma, um, and I think it was about two weeks after that, that I started losing control of my eyesight as well. Um, I could still see light and darkness, but I had no control over my eyesight. Um, so at that point, the, the pipe of the ventilator was still in my mouth. I couldn't really communicate. Um, but, um, you know, they, they obviously also weren't sure whether I, you know, everything in my head was still fine. My helmet broke during the accident, so my head also did get a bit of a knock. So um, because of my eyes going like that, um, they had to do an MRI scan. And I don't know if any of you guys know what an MRI scan is, but it's a huge machine that you go into and there's no metal allowed inside. So they actually had to take me off the ventilator and a guy had to manually breathe me while I was inside um, the MRI scan. 
And they didn't tell me what they were doing. I was just moved, put in the machine that makes this huge noise. And then I can breathe, and then suddenly I can't breathe, and I think I'm dying. And then I can breathe again, and then I'm dying. So, you know, for me, that was a really tough experience. I didn't know what was going on and all this noise. Um, and, you know, then I feel like I'm just can't breathe anymore, and I'm dying, and then suddenly I'm breathing again. Anyway, um, after that, um, I just remember the guy that was mainly breathing me told his colleague, that was so stressful that he never ever wants to do that in his life again. And I just remember thinking that um, I would also hope he never does it in his life again because he, <laughs> he was pretty crap at doing it. So um, <laughs> anyway, um, uh, you know, at that point, I started moving a bit of my arm, my shoulders. So <clears throat> my parents and I had this thing where they went through the alphabet. Um, and I have to say, it was really hard to keep concentration, being on a morphine, permanent morphine drip still at that point. Um, but we started spelling, you know, and I shorthand, and then like letters, and then my mom would start guessing, and I, um, like, is it this word, and then a sentence, you know, and that's how we started communicating. Um, and obviously things just went from bad to worse, with my eyesight going, so at that point, um, I started spelling E-N-G, um, which is the first three letters for angel in Afrikaans, which is our home language. Um, so my mom was just immediately, am I seeing the angels? Are they coming to fetch me? You know, those type of things. And um, luckily at that point, my godfather was also there. Um, and, you know, he was also big into sports. Um, and um, he just said that was 2003 during the World Cup. Um, and my roommate was actually Lawrence Parker, who was in the World Cup squad at that point. So he just said, no, man, he doesn't even want to know the score between England and South Africa, which is the ENG. Um, and um, I think that broke the ice for my parents because they realized Here's this guy, he's half dead, losing his eyesight, um, and he remembers that England plays South Africa today and he wants to know the score. So they realized everything in my head is still 100% fine, um, and I think that's where you know, things started sort of getting better for them. Ended up in ICU for about 42 days. Um, I came off the ventilator, started breathing by myself on day 32, um, and um, then I was ready to go to um, rehab. Um, now, the photo you'll see now is um, still in ICU just before I went to rehab. Um, and it was just incredible, the support I had. Um, uh, I had a bit of a nickname at Varsity, um, Super Pit, which is stuck uh, all the way to now. Um, I think it was because I was pretty good at everything that I did do. Um, and they made the Super Pit t-shirts, or, or rather cycling shirts, um, and they cycled the 94.7 in support of me. So. I mean, that, that's just a group that came and, and um, sort of surprised me with that. And uh, yeah, I mean, so the support I had was incredible. Anyway, rehab in South Africa for quadriplegics. Um, we'll get into it a bit more exactly what a C6 quadriplegic is. My wife will explain to you just now. Um, but, um, you know, I spent 12 weeks in rehab, and rehab is really just a stepping stone. Um, with our medical aids, um, I don't think there's enough money for us to spend enough time in rehab uh, versus sort of the first world countries. Um, where the guys sometimes can spend up to six to, to nine months in rehab um, uh, with the level of, of quadriplegia that I have. Um, so, you know, for me, it, it's a stepping stone and um, sort of a learning curve of what this body of mind is all about. But a big thing that most people don't realize is um, with spinal cord injuries is that you lose control of your bowel and your bladder. So I was 23 years old in the prime of my life, studying my honors, South African team triathlon, and suddenly I'm back on nappies, um, can't do anything for myself. So, I mean, it's a really tough situation to be in. Um, and a big thing people don't realize is that 
you know, a lot of times guys in wheelchairs, it's not just about sitting in this wheelchair. A lot of times you sit at home and you don't go out because you're scared of having an accident in terms of your bowel and your bladder. And that's what really keeps you at home. And, um, you know, a lot of times staying at home and not carrying on with life, that's where depression and all those things comes in. Now, luckily in my case, um, you know, the way I thought about it, it wasn't my fault that I was in that accident. It happened. And um, for me, you know, I was going to carry on with life. So if accident happened in public, whatever, people that could deal with it, deals with it, those that can't, so be it. But, um, you know, I carried on with life. Um, but the big thing is those are some of the big challenges that you have. Um, and another thing is in rehab, they immediately put you on antidepressants um, because they say you are going to hit the wall um, and somewhere, you know, it, it's not good. And obviously it, it, it helps to stay positive during that whole period. And I just believed, um, I'm a man of faith, and I just believe as long as I hold on to my faith, that I'll be fine. So every day I looked at that pill box and I took that antidepressant out of there. Um, and I've got nothing against antidepressants, but I just knew I wasn't depressed, and I knew as long as I held on to my faith, I'll be fine. Um, so I had huge fights with the doctors in rehab in terms of that. Um, but, you know, for me, the big thing is a miracle, and I'll believe that the day that I die, the miracles can happen. But a miracle would be to stand up and walk. Um, but it's not just your legs that need to start working. Um, you know, you need your trunk, and there's a whole bunch of other things, um, you know, before you start walking. But for me, it's more of a miracle that it's now, I'm going on 13 years of sitting in this wheelchair, and I haven't had one bad day of um, being in this wheelchair and living life in a wheelchair as a quadriplegic. Um, so for me, that's more of a miracle, and that's just absolute grace from above. Um, and, um, yeah, you know, it, it was huge fights in rehab um, with the doctors, but eventually, I mean, I did learn what this body of mine was all about um, and start learning to do small things like brushing your teeth, um, eating by yourself. They, you know, a lot of guys give you tools to use, um, etc. I didn't like to use tools, but, you know, you learn those small things, but at that point, you're still quite weak and not strong, um, strong enough. Um, so by the time that I went home, I was still very weak. Um, but yeah, you know, this is um, where I normally bring my wife into the story as well. Um, uh, she is an occupational therapist, um, and she's actually a little bit older than me, friends with my older brother. Um, and at the point of my accident, uh, she were, my brother was overseas in Australia, and um, he just let his friends know, including her, that um, they must come and support my parents at the hospital. And obviously because she worked in spinal rehab at that point, um, he knew that she could explain to them sort of what the road forward is. So I was actually still in a coma when she first um, came to hospital, so I always say we met by accident, literally. Um, <laughs> but um, after 12 weeks in rehab, uh, it was the 23rd of February 2004, I went home as a C6 quadriplegic, and I'm going to let her explain to you exactly what that is. Okay, so... Um I don't think you're gonna hear much about anatomy at this congress today, so <laughs> I'll um, change the topic for you a little bit. Um, so C6 quadriplegic is exactly um, what it says, it broke the vertebra at C6 level. So the big difference between a quadriplegic and a paraplegic is that a quadriplegic, um, all four limbs are affected. And with a paraplegic, it's only two limbs, um, which are the legs that are affected. So it depends on where in your spine you broke your neck or your back. So you've got C, um, C vertebrae, your neck from C1 to C7. 
So then you'll be a quadriplegic, and below that, you're a paraplegic. So on the picture, it's exactly the, the purple that would be quadriplegic, and then below that, he'll be a paraplegic. So in Peter's case, he broke C6. So like Christopher Reeve was on a ventilator, he's, he broke C3, and then as you go down, you get more muscle function. So in Peter's case, he's got good shoulder movement. I'll just do some movement for those that don't know what she's talking about. <laughs> <coughs> and then he's got biceps. Just this. And then he's got wrist movement. So he actually doesn't have finger movement. So if I was to hold his wrist, then um, he can't move his fingers. So everything you see him do with his fingers, it's actually if you relax your wrist and you lift up your wrist, you see your fingers move automatically. So there's no real grip, it's just manipulation that you use your fingers. So big muscles that he doesn't have is obviously from chest down, trunk, nothing. And then also the other big muscle is your, your tricep muscle. So that's actually what makes your arm look bulky. So people would ask him why are his arms so thin because he does so much. But it's actually because he hasn't got a tricep muscle and that's what makes your arm look big, not the bicep, contrary to belief. <laughs> so I can't lift my arm up over my head now. That's the tricep movement. Can't lift myself up like this in the chairs. I've got different tricks of doing it. So um, the other thing that he also doesn't have is um, he's got light touch sensation over his whole body, but he can't feel pain or temperature, hot and cold. And then he also can't sweat. So your whole thermoregulation is affected. You can't get your heart rate up. Um, so there's quite a few other things apart from just being paralyzed. Um, and then um, as an occupational therapist, like he said, I was working in spinal rehab at that stage. If you think about the muscles I just explained to you now of how do you continue life, you know, like I often have people say to me, but he's a quadriplegic, which means he can't do anything. And that's exactly what comes up in your mind because, I mean, there's not much muscle left. So as an occupational therapist, obviously we teach people how to do things in different ways. But I always used to tell my patients that they're still going to need some kind of help with many tasks of daily living. But Peter said to me that that's not going to be him. So I somehow believed him, not sure why, <laughs> but I think that's also one of the reasons why I probably stuck around for a bit longer to see what's going to happen. <laughs> Quite nice, eh? <laughs> Um, and that's where our friendship started. He was never my patient, he was never at my rehab, but I went to visit him often, and yeah, we just became really good friends, so I'll let him continue the story. So, um, as I said, ready to go home 12 weeks later, 23 Feb 2004, as a C6 quadriplegic, um, and I know a little bit more of how little function I do have. Um, but obviously, a big thing for me was, um, at Rao University at that point, um, you're, you catch your degree in April. Um, so I decided already while I was in rehab that when I get back home, I want to try and finish my exams before April so that I can actually get my degree, my honours degree then with the class that I um, um, had at Rao. Um, so two weeks after I got back home, um, I, I wrote my honours exams um, orally at that point. Um, but, you know, when I think about it today, 
you know, I got back home. I could still do nothing for myself. At that point, I couldn't even really come from lying in bed up to sitting in bed by myself. Um, and then obviously a whole bunch of other things like fatigue and you get tired. I mean, I lost so much weight during the whole period um, of his not eating properly um, during the, my ICU period, etc. So, you know, then also just the whole adjustment. Now you're quite pleasing all those things to worry about. Finishing your exam is crazy. Um, and I mean, it was tough. I remember my, my parents, I at Varsity used to study late at night as well. Um, so I remember my parents, parents used to sit me up against the wall. Um, I, at that point, I had a double bed at home when I got back home. Um, and then I would study, and then um, when I'm finished, I put the, um, the uh, textbooks and, and files, etc., next to me, and I'd wheel myself down a little worm um, and then go to sleep. Um, and it was tough, you know, doing all of that um, during those two weeks, but um, I wanted to get it out of the way. Um, and yeah, two weeks later, I did get my honours exam. Um, up till today, I'm not sure whether it was the wheelchair face or my knowledge that, um, that actually got me the nod, but um, I believe I did know a little bit of what was going on. Um, but yeah, you know, then it was really all about getting myself independent, um, and I was so glad that I got that out of the way. Um, and, um, you know, I always tell people my getting dressed story, because that's where my belief in the impossible being possible started again. Um, and obviously, being a sportsman, I, I timed everything beforehand. Um, and beforehand, I learned that when I started cycling, you know, I thought those guys that average 40 k's an hour or more, it's never going to happen. And then maybe as you carry on, one day you open your eyes and it happens. Um, so I decided I'm going to tie myself getting fully dressed. I'd figured out how to put the socks on, how to put the pants on, etc., separately with tricks. Again, um, I did all of this only using my hands with no finger movement, etc. Um, you know, so I had to figure all these things out for myself because um, in rehab there was nobody that told me you can do it or showed me how to do it. Um, and um, yeah, the video that you can watch in the background is of me um, showing other guys at a rehab how to do it. Um, anyway, I timed myself getting fully dressed the first time, and it took me 51 minutes. Um, and I was dead tired. Um, and I just decided, okay, well, that's not functional. I can't rest, even if I got it down to 45 minutes or whatever, for that long every day. Um, so I said, I'm going to make my target that I think would be a functional time, uh, 15 minutes, which is probably faster than most women here anyway. Um, <laughs> so, and I decided, so what I'll do is, every day I'll dress until I hit 15 minutes. And then I'll stop, and then I had a person that, w that helped me for the first year. That person can then carry on getting, uh, dressing me fully, with the whole idea that eventually I'll get faster and better, and eventually I'll be fully dressed at 15 minutes. Um, and I must say, the, the, the girl that was with me, um, initially I could see this guy timing on your mocks, it says, go start or stop, watch timing yourself. She was laughing inside, because what the hell is this guy doing, you know? And I mean, I understand the timing yourself getting dressed. Um, but, you know, two weeks later, she saw, yes, I'm getting closer and closer to, you know, further and further off fully dressed every day before I hit the 15-minute mark. And I think it was about a month later of every day doing that, two steps forward, one step back. Um, I hit the clock fully dressed before 15 minutes. I'd done it. Um, and I decided, okay, I'm not going to make um, that it, you know, I'm going to make my world record impossible, never to be reached time for getting dressed seven minutes. Because as I saw myself getting faster, it motivated me. And I started timing everything that I do on a daily basis. Because as I got faster, it motivated me because I was getting better at living this life as a quad. Anyway, um, you know, 
carried on, dropped under 13 minutes, dropped under 12 minutes. And I think it was about two months later, I opened my eyes and I got under seven minutes, fully dressed. Um, and for me, you know, the amazing thing about that is, through a simple thing as getting dressed, it showed me again that, you know, it's okay to see a barrier, but for me, I see that barrier as something that needs to be smashed through. And you just need to carry on trying and trying and trying. And maybe one day when you open your eyes, you're going to be there. Um, or you might be even further than you thought you were because you even forgot that that was the goal. But I, I can promise you, you'll be a hell of a lot further or closer than if you never even started believing it or going down that road to start off with. So today, I don't tie myself getting dressed um, every day anymore. Obviously, my wife will kill me. Um, but um, I still every now and then go for a record, and currently my record is 2 minutes and 41 seconds. So um, obviously that is like two and a half times faster than what I thought was going to be impossible. Um, and that's definitely a million times faster than most women sitting here. So um, um, anyway, um, so as I said, I timed everything. Um, and, um, you know, getting into the car, I drive myself. Um, I get in the car, I take the wheels off, put it behind me, and then put my chair next to me, um, and I drive off. When I started, that took me 25 minutes. Now I can sit outside the car, get in the car, get the chair in the car, and drive off in one minute and 20 seconds. So, I mean, life has become really functional. Um, and I must say, one of my greatest achievements over the years is still that I can say I'm now independent. Um, and, I mean, you can count C6 quadriplegics in the world on your hand who, who's as independent and, and functional as, as what I am. So I'm quite proud of that. Um, and, um, you know, all along this, obviously, sport played a big role um, because as I do more sports, I got stronger and it made my activities of daily living easier and I figured out new things or new ways of doing things as I got stronger. So initially, when I thought about sports, um, you know, and what sports there were, you know, I thought, yes, like, you know, I'm a quad, I'm pretty useless now, slow, etc. so what can I do? And um, then I saw the standing chairs, so I thought maybe, you know, wheelchair golf is an option. Um, but then uh, my friends told me, well, none of them's going to come and play against me because I always win because my handicap's so high. So, um, okay, no, I'm kidding. Uh, there is actually wheelchair golf. Um, <laughs> um, but for me, it was too slow. Um, I started off playing a game called wheelchair rugby. Um, and it's more like American football, the, how the rules work, but uh, it was just accessible. There was a club and chairs you could play at. Um, and yeah, I mean, as I said, you know, as I played and got stronger, it helped me. Um, and um, yeah, you know, I managed to make a South African team within the first year of playing. Um, and we went to Rio um, with World Wheelchair Games. Um, and yeah, it was incredible. But, uh, you know, all along, while I was in rehab already, I had actually trained, um, before my accident, started training with a guy called Rain Ottison, who's now actually coaching me. He was a professional Ironman athlete. Um, and he just um, brought me a video of paraplegics doing Ironmans and triathlon. So in the back of my mind, you know, it was always like, maybe I can be a quadriplegic doing triathlons, um, and maybe the first to do that. Um, so always I knew, you know, I want to get back into my individual sports. Um, but obviously, I was still at home and I needed to get a job so, um, you know, and, and get all those things and those ducks in a row before I move on to sort of focusing on my sport again. So I did immediately start sort of thinking about these sports, cycling, swimming and, and, and run, uh, running, which I, I do in a racing chair. I um, started thinking about that in the background, but um, 
I had to start looking for a job. Um, and again, it was just amazing how um, I landed my job at Deloitte, which was my first job um, as an actuarial analyst. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's incredible. Um, the guy who hired me, Emil Stipp, um, many of you might actually know him as well. Um, and yeah, it's just incredible how they've been supporting me ever since. Um, they're one of my main sponsors over the years um, in all the, the adventures I've taken on. Um, and yeah, I mean, from, from the billboards, you can just see how they have been behind me. And I work with an incredible team that allow me to do what I do. Um, these days, I only work three quarter days, spending about six hours a day um, at the office. So um, yeah, you know, I'm just very thankful for them allowing me to do what I do um, and making it work. Um, and yeah, it was during these years, um, after I got sort of my work in play, etc., that um, I started thinking about Ilza and I were friends, and I started thinking about I would marry this woman. Um, so I actually had bought a wedding ring at, um, I think it was beginning of 2007, I had bought a wedding ring. Um, but a key thing for me was during this period, she didn't know me before my accident, so she didn't realize what a big role or where I was going with this whole sport thing. So I knew I would marry her, but I wanted her to see a bit more of what I mean when I say, um, you know, I'm going to go do a lot of sports still in my life. Um, so I wanted her to know the real me in terms of sports. So I tagged her along um, when I went to this training camp overseas. Um, and um, after this training camp, uh, I, th I thought, okay, so now, you know, speaking with some of the professional athletes there, etc. Um, I thought, okay, now I think she realizes sort of where I'm going with this thing. And I think it was finally the 3rd of February 2008 that I asked her to marry me. And I'll let her tell you a little bit more about that. Yeah, so um, it took Peter three years to ask me to marry him. So I decided it's going to take me three months to arrange the wedding. <laughs> so we got married three months later on the 3rd of May 2008. And yeah, that was obviously a very special and amazing day. But I just want to backtrack a little bit. Um, like I said, we became really good friends when you were still in rehab. But when we realized that we actually liked each other a little bit more than just friends, uh, it was a really a struggle in my mind because I'm an occupational therapist and I work with disability. So I didn't really see myself as um, getting involved with a person with a disability in my private life. So Peter had to work really hard <laughs> to get me. Um, but it was amazing how he just helped me to see it from a different angle. You know, I realized I'm in love with this guy. He's in a wheelchair, but I'm in love with him. So the wheelchair is just something extra that we have to manage. Um, so it's amazing, once I overcame that whole mindset of he's in a wheelchair, it was amazing that I just felt set free and we've just been on one amazing adventure together um, ever since. And you know, when, when we got married, I thought one of the things that's gonna be a little bit hard is to travel and I really love traveling, so I thought I was gonna have to like give it up. And it's just amazing how God just gave that in, in so many ways back to me because now we actually traveled more than what I probably ever would have traveled on my own. So it's amazing how sometimes you think something gets taken away 
and then it just gets given back to you in so many different ways. And yeah, so I'll let Peter continue. Look, I must say, um, uh, I did marry a, a real angel. A lot of times people think I think I'm the angel and the good guy here, but um, I have to say my wife, you know, I'm really blessed. I don't think I deserve her. Um, but yeah, you know, just to touch on what she said, you know, sure, we can't go walking hand on hand on the beach, hand in hand on the beach. Um, but then, you know, you guys can't go down and down there with your wife on your lap at 40 k's an hour, you know. So, you know, it's all about how you think about these things in life. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, sometimes a door closes to open the door for me, you know, so it's really just to make that mind shift and then, you know, there's still so many doors open in different ways and you can just enjoy life in so many other different ways. Um, but yeah, you know, the wedding was amazing. We had an amazing honeymoon, but after that, we're still back on track on getting my, um, to my first triathlon. Um, so, uh, you know, what is a triathlon? For those that don't know, it's swimming, cycling and running. Um, and a lot of people, there will be a video or two in the, uh, just now and where you can see exactly how I do these things. But, um, you know, with swimming, cycling, and running, I had to figure these things out myself. Um, there was nobody to tell me, um, there's nobody to tell me um, how do I swim. Um, you know, there was no quads that, of my level that actually do swim or swim in a proper swimming pool for that matter. It's all just for rehab. Um, so, you know, with all three of the sports, the key thing for me was, and it's something that I always you know, tell people is, if you want something, if you've got a goal or dream in life, you need to make it happen. It's not going to happen by itself. And even if you need people to help you make it happen, you still need to make them help you make it happen. Um, it's up to you. It doesn't help to sit and wait for it. So for me, luckily, I did have my sporting background and understood swimming a little bit. Um, but um, I do a double on backstroke. Um, and I've now figured out like, three different type of backstrokes. I can do um, one arm backstroke as well, and I've got two double arm type of backstrokes, and through the years, figured out which ones are faster. But it's also, again, amazing how the first 100 meter I swam in a pool, I think, took me over six minutes, um, and I was dead tired after finishing that full 100 meters that I swam as a quad. Um, and, um, you know, these days, I, in 2014, I swam two mid more miles in the same day. Um, under two and a half minutes per hundred, averaging about under two and a half minutes per hundred, beating about a third of the able body field. So it's just incredible how you know you can evolve and how you can get faster if you just keep going at it again. Um, and the same with the cycling. Um, when I started off cycling, I did the gears um, and the brakes with my chin. And I've, I've been with the whole evolvement of hand cycling. Um, Nowadays, um, I do the brakes with my forearms and my elbows and, and the gears as well. Um, you would have seen the two different photos of the different bikes that we're on as we go down and aerodynamics, etc. I figured out my own little custom sort of grips that I use um, to hold on to the handles. Um, and again, when I started cycling, um, I um, averaged, I think, 6.1 k's an hour on a 2k ride that I did with my first bike. And again, I was also stuffed. Now, currently, um, last year I did the fastest um, average speed on a time trial at the World Cup for my class, um, averaging 28 k's an hour. So it's just insane, you know, how you can improve. And I mean, that, that's actually decent speeds. Um, but that has to be said also, it's on a flat time trial course. The moment it's really without the triceps, um, it, it's a big, a, a big difference in terms of what, what you can average. Um, 
And yeah, you know, even the cycling, my, you know, one of, the of my greatest achievements is um, I, I've, I've now been a three-time world champion in hand cycling. Currently, I'm the double world champion from last year. Um, and yeah, you know, I've done uh, amazing things on the bike as well. Um, other than that, um, and then wheel the running part, which is wheelchair racing, basically, um, same story. You know, nobody in South Africa could tell me, uh, you know, the technique, etc. There's a guy called Adams van Dijk who's won the Boston so many times, but he walks. Um, so they push in completely different ways, set up, you know, the way they sit in their chairs, etc. So again, um, you know, I, I learned a bit from the other guys overseas, but since then I've sort of evolved in my own position, playing with angles, etc., on the racing chair. Um, and yeah, you know, I've, I've also had amazing um, results in the racing chair, um, and I've, I've medaled at world champs in athletics. Uh, you saw me being at the Paralympics, um, and um, I've won many international marathons. Last year, I won Berlin Marathon for the fourth year in a row. Um, and I also break six, broke six African records and the world record in the 10,000 meters in the racing chair. So it was really incredible year for me. Um, and um, yeah, uh, you know, I had such an amazing year last year that um, I ended up being nominated for Laureus World Sport Awards. Um, and we ended up going to the Sport Awards in Berlin in April this year. Um, unfortunately, I didn't, I didn't get the award, but um, just to get a nomination for such a such a great um, on such a great platform it was just incredible um, and yeah you know with all of those things being said um, one of the most amazing moments of my life was when I finished my first marathon um, because it was just you know something that a lot of people told me wasn't going to be done as a quadriplegic of my level and um, it was Berlin Marathon in September 2008 about six months after we got married um, uh, my first marathon, I did 3 hours and 12 minutes, which isn't bad. Um, but these days, I, my best marathon is 2 hours and 28 minutes. So again, it's just incredible how you can improve and how much you can improve if you just keep going at it. Um, and yeah, I must say, after this, I came back, felt like a hero, just did my first marathon. <clears throat> and it, it was two weeks after this, that to the minute, actually almost exactly to the minute, five years since I broke my neck, I was back in ICU, um, and what had happened was two days prior to that, my appendix had burst, and because I can't feel and don't feel pain normally, I just thought I had one huge stomach bug, um, and then um, carried on for two days with that, and uh, look, I didn't realize you die from burst appendix. Um, and the doctor even said it's the first time in 15 years that he sees somebody that's still alive uh, with the appendix so perforated he couldn't find it um, when he operated. Uh, and for the guys, don't worry, that cut does stop just in time. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> but um, it, this was almost for me worse than when I broke my neck because I just didn't get better. Um, you know, and they had to operate twice. I was in ICU for a month again. Um, and, you know, after that I went back home. For the first month, Ilza stopped working and she was there with me in hospital the whole time. Um, but um, then she started working again and my parents was at home. I had to get up every day and you're nauseous, you can't eat, you don't want to eat, um, and you just don't get, don't get better, um, and you're dizzy the whole time. My parents had to feed me. I couldn't feed myself because I, I, I was just so dizzy. I, I had to slide down. And, um, you know, the reason why I'm telling you guys this is bad things happen in life, and bad things will happen again, and it's going to happen again and again and again. Um, 
But for me, the key thing is when a bad thing happens, I see it as an opportunity to be great. It's again just the way you think about it and how you can turn it around. Um, you know, so every morning I had to get up and tell myself, am I going to let this beat me or am I going to beat it? Um, and yeah, you know, it, it's amazing for me that um, it was, I think, 28 November um, that my system sort of rebooted again. And finally I started feeling hungry and like I just wanted to, you know, eat and carry on. Um, and yeah, it was from there that I started really recovering again and carrying on. Um, and um, I, from there, I think I took December off in January. I started training again, um, started working in December and carried on with things again. Um, but yeah, so um, in January after that, I was back on my goal of doing my first triathlon. And in 2009, I set the date to be in December. Um, and that didn't happen because there was a plane crash on the bike course. So I was going to do a stand, a sprint distance triathlon, which is a 750 open water swim, 20Ks on the bike, and then a 5K run, which I do in the racing chair. Um, but then that got moved to February in 2010. Um, and I decided I had more time, so I'm just going to double up and do the Olympic distance, which is a one and a half kilometer swim, 40 kilometer on the bike, which I do on the hand bike, and then a 10K run, which I push in the racing chair. And, um, you know, the tough thing, I don't know if any of you guys have ever done open water swims, but people swim all over you. And it's actually very dangerous because I can't cough. Um, I also don't have intercostal muscles. Um, so, you know, if you swallow water, it's very dangerous. So. I did have and do have a guy that swims with me to help me keep direction as well because I'm on my back the whole time. But I just remember it was fighting off panic attack after panic attack off on, the, off on the first lap of the 750. Um, and then on the second lap of 750, I started relaxing, get going, got going. And um, yeah, when I got on the bike, I knew I was going to do it. Um, but it wasn't over yet because it's a hot day. I don't sweat. Um, so there's a whole bunch of other challenges other than the fact that your bladder and your bowel and those type of things that you have to handle on a day like that as well, which is not normal versus the able bodies. Um, but I managed to do it. Um, I think it took me three hours and 52 minutes and I did my first Olympic distance try and I was probably the first C6 squad in the world to do it. Um, but because it had gone so well, I started thinking, yes, maybe I can double up and do a, go for a half Ironman maybe. Um, but it was at that point that um, the 100 meters opened up at the Paralympics um, for my disability class. So I changed my training quite a bit. And as you saw in the beginning, um, you know, it was a very special day when the team got announced on 20th of June in 2012. And I can talk days about the Paralympics. It's incredible, the, the Paralympic village um, and, and just the whole, the whole experience. Um, but yeah, you know, the race was one of my most amazing races of my life. Um, the lead up wasn't exactly as planned, it wasn't perfect. Um, my mom passed away that year and I was in a car accident three weeks before, etc. So, um, you know, no excuses, but it ended up not being necessarily the greatest race time-wise. But I ended up coming six in 900 meters um, and I'm an endurance athlete, so, you know, it was, was just a really amazing experience. Um, but I remember that night already, I believe if you set the date, it becomes a goal, otherwise it stays a dream. So I'm a firm believer of setting dates for my dreams and then they'll become goals. Um, so that night already, obviously I'd researched what half Ironman courses would work, but that night already after that race, I emailed um, the people and asked them, you know, whether they will allow me to come race the, the half Ironman race. So I set the date for 11 May 2013 to become the first quadriplegic in the world to do a half Ironman. 
Now, half Ironman is 1.9k swim, then a 90-kilometer bike, which I do on the hand bike, and a half marathon, 21.1ks, um, which I do in the racing chair. Um, I only have 15% of the muscle function that the able bodies have. I have to make the able body cutoffs on the swim, bike, and run, in, um, which sounds like ridiculous, but at the same time, it's cool because if you cross that line, then whoever you beat, you beat them under the same circumstances, making the same cutoff. So. For me, that was pretty cool. Um, and I must say, when I started this journey of the half Ironman, I started thinking this will be it for me in terms of the amount of training you do and the you know, amount of hours I put on the very little muscles that I do have um, in terms of what's possible. But then as I got through it halfway on the way there, um, I started adapting, your body starts adapting, and I started thinking about how fast I was going to do this half Ironman. It wasn't just anymore just finishing it and making the cutoffs. Um, and yeah, race day came, and I beat the overall cutoff by almost more than two hours, doing six hours and 36 for my first half Ironman. And I beat about a third of the able body field. And it was after that that I thought, geez, I did this so fast now, why can't I just go for a full Ironman? Um, and um, I must say, full Ironman is exactly double that. So it's a 3.8K swim in the sea. 180 kilometers on the bike, and then a full marathon, 42.2 running. Um, and, um, you know, I must say, the training for that was a whole different ball game. But again, um, you know, it was a real team effort between my wife, uh, my team that I work with at Deloitte, um, you know, because I still had to work my, my six hours. Um, uh, but I did do some work from home, etc. in between. And a typical training week would be, um, you know, my base training, I would do about between 12 to 16 kilometers of swimming, um, spend about 17 to 20 hours on the bike um, in the racing chair between six and eight hours. I jumped two sessions of one hour each. Um, and so some of my, my longest weeks, I physically trained 35 hours, but the time spent on training was sometimes 40 to 42 hours because obviously you drive to and from places, um, get ready in the morning, stressed, etc., putting a wetsuit on for me, it's not as easy as for you guys, um, for my having to help me. So all of those things account to about spending about 42 hours a week in training in my base phase. Um, you have to recover, obviously sleep in between, make sure you recover because it's all about recovery. Um, you can do as much training as you want, but if you don't recover, you're just going to go backwards. Um, and then obviously getting the work hours in. But all of that is possible with good time management. Um, and it was about six weeks out that I made a little bit of a preview video of becoming the first quad and I'll like to do an Ironman and I'm going to let you guys have a look at that quickly.
as you saw there, um, six weeks out, uh, I was training out of the cradle. It was three weeks before 94.7, a lot of rookie cyclists, first, guy first time on his road bike, doing a U-turn without looking. Um, I tried to miss him, obviously couldn't. My forearm hit his fork and I broke my forearm. And um, I was lying there on the tar. I must say this time around I was a bit annoyed for about five minutes because um, there was quite a lot of work that went into this whole Ironman thing, and it's not just you know my work, team effort between me and my wife and, and the guy that was going to race with me. Um, but I did tell him I forgive him. He just better look before he does another U-turn the next time he does it. Um, but it was amazing, you know, because you know you spent all these hours training, and then this happens. Um, and at that point, look, it made a funny sound when I moved it, so I wasn't sure whether it was broken. But um, there was a nurse that stopped, and she said it's definitely broken. But on the way to the hospital, I told my wife somehow, um, you know, I think this is still going to happen. Because again, for me, I must say that whole journey was a journey, um, you know, of faith for me as well. Um, because it's something that's never been done before. It's something that seems impossible. And I um, got to the hospital, did the x-ray. This x-ray doesn't do it justice because it's after the plaque got put in. But my forearm was broken in three pieces. Um, so the doctor just told me, look, man, there's no ways you're going to do an Ironman in six weeks' time, um, so just forget about it. Anyway, um, he put the plates in, and I was in a cast for two weeks, and during those two weeks, I already planned on how I was going to get back to training and using the arm. I had special casts made for me during those two weeks so that when the actual cast comes off, I can use those casts to help me to carry on training. Um, and we decided, um, unless for me, God doesn't show me that it shouldn't be done, I'm going to go for it. Um, and I mean, during that period, you have to realize I, I couldn't put any weight on my, my left arm. My wife had to help me get in and out of the bath and do everything, drop me off at work. Um, when my arm was in the cast, sometimes I trained for six hours on the indoor training with one arm. I got in the racing chair and trained for one arm in the racing chair. And one of the things that I thought would be the, things, the one thing that I can do is swimming. And um, that was actually when the cars came off, the one thing that hurt the most. Um, and I remember, like, in the first two weeks, every time I got out of the pool, um, my tears in my eyes um, of the pain, having to bend my arm again. Um, but it was all calculated risk. We are actuaries, so it's all calculated risk. Um, but, you know, the key thing for me was, um, you know, we were a team. And when working in a team, the key thing is to not let other guys start doubting that certain things are possible. So for me, luckily it's a pool, you get out of there, you've got water in your face. So they didn't know that I was crying over the pain, but I didn't want them to know that I was hurting. Um, but it was hard. Um, and it was hard to keep that belief that you can still go out and do this. Um, and we had to make a call two weeks out whether we're still going to fly out to Australia and go do this full Ironman. Um, and I cycled 100 k's that day for the first time on the road um, using both arms. I obviously kept using the left arm, only 60% probably effort. But after that, we decided we're going to give it a go. Um, and I'm going to play a quick four or five minute video of what happened on race there. South African Peter Dupreeze has been on a remarkable journey. After being paralysed in an accident 10 years ago, it's now his dream to be the first quadriplegic to ever complete an Ironman. I'm a C6 quadriplegic uh, um, and yeah, since I had my accident 10 years ago when I broke my neck, a cycling accident, I was a triathlete at that stage. It was just my biggest dream to do an Ironman. 
I really just have biceps and shoulder muscles and wrist movement. I've got no finger movement, no tricep movement, and completely paralyzed over my whole body. So uh, people just think it's just not possible. You know? It's been a very long journey, but um, did the half in May, and so I'm going to give it a go. As if Peter didn't have enough challenges, just six weeks before Bustleton, Peter broke his left forearm in a training accident. About six weeks ago, I broke my forearm with another a guy who didn't see me, did a U-turn in front of me. Um, and then again, the doctors told me I shouldn't come and do it. Uh, I've got a plate in here now, it's still broken, but um, taking a bit of a risk, but, uh, you know, I just really felt it's, it's still on the cards for me to do this. And, uh, yeah, now we're here today, awesome day, and we're going to do it. I'm ready. So the last six weeks um, definitely been challenging. But we both just felt that this is meant to happen. It's been a really a, a team effort and it's, it's awesome to be so closely part of something as big as this. Peter now wants to show the world that nothing is impossible. Well, I've always tells me I can't say this, but, you know, I said if I actually finish my full Ironman, then I can die, you know, it's like, for me in the world, to me, but, you know, for me at the same time, in this whole journey, it's just shown me how we can inspire each other, you know, so me doing this, I inspire people, yes, but by them coming up and telling me, yes, well done, and so on, it absolutely inspired me, probably even more than they, that I inspire them, you know, so we all have that power to inspire, and, and yeah, you know, for me, it's just incredible. I've got to say, we've covered some extraordinary stories over the years in Ironman events all over the world, but uh, Matt Keenan, my co-commentator, that is as extraordinary as it gets. If any of the professional athletes or the age groupers were looking for a little bit of inspiration, they've found it. The elites are underway. One... Here at Ironman Western Australia and the extraordinary story of Peter Dupree's continues. It came out exactly as then under one hour forty, so very good. But so far, so good. Eh? I'm gonna go out as hard as I can. <laughs> but I trained for it, so. But I mean, everything is on schedule, so I'm confident that I can still do this. So weather's good, fit for me, so can't complain about anything. Now. It's just up to me to do it. Well, I do believe you'll need to get me a, another thesaurus, Matt, because I can't find the words. I mean, the swim, say good swim, one hour 39. One of the able-bodied athletes in the age group would be very happy with that. Luke So 13 hours and 20 minutes later, against all the odds, Peter Dupreeze is the first quadriplegic to ever complete an Ironman. For Peter, it's been an incredibly emotional journey. You know, I was tired, but it's like, you know, you're going to finish it. I just knew I was going to do it. So, yeah, the support just carried me. It was incredible. My time, I'm, I just can't believe I did 13 hours, 20, breaking my arm six weeks ago. It's... That's no, unbelievable, and the support on the course was incredible. Just grateful for the Ironman guys allowing me to do the race, and yeah, yes, 
I'm a bit lost for words. It's just a huge achievement. Yeah. All the hours. Yeah. The most amazing thing for me is, you know, this is something nobody can ever take away from me and nobody can ever do. I'm the first squad in the world ever to do this and I actually still can't believe it, man. It's, it's incredible, eh? Yeah, I think it's the most emotional moment of my life, eh? So as you see, um, I didn't just finish it, I smashed it. Um, breaking the cutoff by more than three and a half hours um, and again beating a full third of the able-body field. So now I'm not trying to say when you go break your arm, go do something stupid like this. Um, but what I am saying is that, you know, first of all, it was already impossible doing it as a quad. I broke my arm, I'd use only my arms to do what I do. And I went and I finished my Ironman. So there's so much more possible in life than I think any of us can even fathom in our heads. But if you never go down that road, if you never even try, you're never even going to know how far you're going to get. So, you know, there's a lot of things, obviously, that I've learned before and after my accident in life. Um, but some of the key things that I've learned, and probably the, the one thing that, you know, I've really learned as, as the number one thing is that actuaries actually do find solutions to problems. Um, Okay, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, but is that you're only one mind shift away from the solution to any problem. Um, and what I mean by that, um, again, you know, sometimes a door closes to open the door. Uh, when I was in my accident, everybody focused on what I didn't have and what got taken away. I focused on what I had and what opportunity I suddenly had and um, what was given to me through the whole situation. So it's just that mind shift that we need to make, and you can draw the parallel with anything in life. I'm also, uh, you know, always say you've got two choices in life. You know, it's a black and white, a positive, negative choice. But I believe you've got a choice. Um, and, you know, some guys count to 10 when they get cross. I say just throw yourself your two choices, you know. Um, you know, and that is obviously, again, like when my appendix burst or when something bad happens, you know, you can choose to go down that negative road and moan about it and just focus on that. Or you can choose the positive, possibly harder one at that point of how you're going to make this work, how you're going to turn it into something great. When a bad thing happens, opportunity to be great. And I promise you, for me, maybe it was a gift for me to be able to much easier choose the positive one, which a lot of people see as the harder one. But I believe the more and more you practice it and the more and more you apply it, the more and more that one's going to become the easier one until maybe one day, hopefully, choosing the negative one is the difficult one and the easy one is just the second nature one that just happens. And then, you know, this is cliche, but, you know, it's very important to set goals and to have dreams. Um, but I take it one step further and I say, write it down. And again, if you set a date, it becomes a goal. Otherwise, it stays a dream. And you can apply this not just to timing yourself in sport, um, you can apply it to work, you can apply it to your family life. You can say, I want to spend more time with my kids, or I want to work on my anger management, or whatever. And you can say, in a month's time, I want to come back and check, am I better with it? You know? So that's why I say, set down that date, because then it becomes fathomable, you can touch it. Um, and to have smaller goals on the way to bigger ones, smaller dreams on the way to bigger ones. Um, and write it down on a piece of paper. I sign it like a contract, and I put it up against the wall or any place where I can see it and I share it with the people close to me because they can help keep me accountable to these dates and to these dreams that I've, that I've set down. 
So, you know, those three things for me, I think, is the key things that sort of helped me quite a lot in life. Um, and then lastly, I just want to finish off by a shortened version of a poem by Marion Williamson. And that is that our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We were all meant to shine, as children do. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fears, our presence automatically liberates others. Now, on a daily basis, I don't think you guys realize how many people look up at you, maybe if just for a second. It could be you standing in a queue at a toll in pick and pay. And for me, that creates an opportunity for you to be great, to be an example, and to be the best example that you can be. And I mean, I'm often asked, you know, what, you know, would I change or, um, you know, what is a big thing that I would give advice to other people? And a key thing for me is to be nice to people. Um, and like, how would I motivate, motivate my team? Um, and the key thing for me again is to tell somebody when he's done something, pat him on the back, say, yes, that was a good job. We are so, you know, set on focusing on the negative things and critique is, impo is important, but in the same way, telling somebody well done is also important. Smiling at a, at, at a person at the tool can change that person's day. And I promise you, you don't realize how many times in a day there's somebody looking up at you that you didn't even realize. And I have to say, I feel ashamed to say there were some days that there was 30 people in the waiting room waiting to come and visit me while I was in ICU. Sometimes half of those people I didn't even know. And that just made me realize, um, you know, at the same time also, if I, even if I had known them, I probably wouldn't even have gone to the hospital to, you know, support them had they broken their necks. And that made me realize what an impact I make on people that I don't even know of. And it made me feel ashamed. And that sort of whole changed my whole view on those things. So I would just like to tell you guys to go out, be the best example you can be, and go shine your lights brightly. I'm Peter Dupria, and this is my wife, Ilza, and this is not the end, neither is it the beginning. This is life, and we're just living it. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you.